This is part two of a three-part podcast. Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Have you seen the new video of Wheaton Labs? It is permaculture awesomeness with all new and improved things like more rocket mass heaters, easy bake coffin, Willy Wonka, rocket cooktop 2.0, and the truly passive greenhouse. To see more, go to permies.com slash tour. Again, that is permies.com slash tour. I, I love the idea of um what if what if we were to have cuz you were saying something earlier about dowels and yep. and there is a technique that I really like and we do a lot of it here uh where we're going to have dry peg in a green hole yep and and so I kind of wonder if if we put, put a little care into making a roundwood picnic table then um the 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 slats on the top, which I think was kind of like some four inch wide, roughly junk pole, but it would taper. Yep. So as much as it's round wood, it's like every other stick of round wood tapers the other way. Correct. And um and that's what's on this picnic table. Uh and it's it's currently attached with I think decking screws. But what if the and and it's it's round wood on the bottom and it has been uh planed on the top so yep. the whole picnic table is flat you, you can now a drinking cup on it yep so what if the stuff that's underneath the slats is a big green log and what if the slats were green wood yeah and then, uh, you got, because the other thing is when you plane green wood, it's going to plane a lot faster. You just have to make sure yes. to clean your plane afterwards. Yes. And no so, rough. but we could, you know, uh, uh, you know, put, put little tiny, um, saddle joints onto the slats, I'm thinking. Uh, yep. and then, uh, the slat would sit on top of this green wood and then we could, uh, uh, drill, uh, uh, Possibly, let's just say we drill a single hole in each one and put a dry peg into each slat on each end. So as the as the slat dries and the wood below the slat dries, they will shrink Think onto together. those dry pegs. Ta-da! We can also cut the pegs and put wedges in them if we thought they were going to loosen up. My experience so far has been that um this is very tight and very permanent. Okay. Hey. I I'll have never had try. I've never had one of these dry pegs in a green hole get jiggly. Good. Um yeah. So I I think so no glue and no metal. Which I I think is huge. Now, I uh, there, there have been some times when it's kind of like, you know, we could sure use some glue here, but what's going to be our least toxic glue? Now, I don't know about the toxicity of this, but the thing that we've been dabbling with is piney tar with yes. a little bit of uh, wood ash. Okay. I was thinking I was just watching a whole lot of, of video experiments with pine tar and sap for a whole bunch of different things, so that appeals. Yeah. Yeah, because that stuff you can eat. People eat it. Yeah. They they eat it like gum, which does not sound appealing to me at all. But 
you know, they ate it and then they didn't die. So it's like, well, it seems like it's an edible substance there. <laughs> That's there are other glues I've wanted to experiment with. I've used casein glues, which are a milk glue, and I've never made it, but that would be a fun experiment to make glue out of milk. And then there's wheat paste, which you can yep. eat. <laughs> yep. Milk paper paste. Yep. Roundwood picnic table. Anything yes. else about the build? Any other details about the build on the Roundwood picnic table? I wanted to make, as I said, I wanted to make one out of maybe two-inch poles and use lashing to hold it together so that we could move a picnic table. I mean, permanent is great. Big log ones are great. But sometimes you need to set up temporarily, feed people in a spot, and then be able to carry this out. But to have it where it had no metal fasteners and was made out of the same kind of poles that you build your uh, your uphill fencing out of. So that makes me think about the thing that we called the wedding tent, which we're not going to have this year because uh, – do you remember Bob? No. Uh, probably if I see him, but <laughs> – Bob's, Bob's more of an it. Uh, okay. But, but, um, basically we had this thing set up so that there was this, uh, piece of cable attached to the side of the shop and it ran in front of the berm shed up to a tree. Yep. I where there was a that. pulley and there was this big block of wood that hung there. And as the tree swayed and the wind blew and whatever else, Bob would Bob up and down. Down. So Bob, yep. Bob is basically a big hunk of wood and it, and Bob actually has, a, I don't know if you've ever like looked closely at Bob, but Bob has a little label on Bob, a little wood burned label. It says, hello, wow. my name is Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, uh, uh, that was an experiment for this last year and we hooked all those, uh, uh, sunshades and tarps and things onto it. And it made us that huge, cool area in it's front of the shop, and and which was so much more comfortable than the year before, where yeah. we had all those little kind of tenty things and stuff set up, and it was kind of clunky to move through it all. And uh, now we had those sun tarps way up in the sky, and it really cooled things down a lot. I I thought it was really great. So, what we're gonna do this year? is we're going to put a giant pole in the ground on the other side of the shop. Okay. And and we're going to shore it up four different ways, five different ways, and then we're going to come up with new bob. And uh so they'll so we'll attach to that pole and then we'll have we've already got a, a three eighths inch stainless steel cable that'll go from that all the way over to where Bob is now. And, uh, we'll be able to hang even more stuff. So instead of having the wedding tent out back. Right. Bob will be extended and we can even put shades over the building. Right. Thus, in theory, making the building even cooler than it has been. Put, put your scrounge out for payload parachutes. They're often very cheap. So what? Oh, oh to be the, the shades. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay. They, okay I, I, let me give you that this is, I have not scrounged this yet, but if you were to go up to a place that taught people how to jump out of perfectly good planes and land on the <laughs> ground relatively safely, those parachutes get derated and can no longer be used to jump out of planes. 
they throw them away. The other one, and this has become popular, but well, probably 10 years ago, we put the word out that we needed tarps and we got invited to take as many tarps as we wanted. They were folded billboard tarps. They're no longer paper. They're that uh, fiber reinforced plastic stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't mind having Captain, uh, whatever his name's rum facing you or facing the sky, uh, those tarps are grommeted. They have, uh, uh, rope sewn in around the hem on the edge. And they work perfectly. We use them camping and to cover firewood and everything else here. They're good for about three seasons. So we got, uh, we got a bunch of those billboards in the past. Um, uh, there's two different grades we found. Yeah. There's like one that will last two years and there's another that's, um, more like three months, maybe two or three months yeah. as a billboard. Yep. And, uh, when we, we, when we originally discovered them, they gave them to us for free. They just said, they just said, don't, whatever you use them for, don't let the message be seen. Exactly. That's what they told us. Yeah. And if you'll, if you'll respect, be respectful in that way, we're okay with this. Then eventually something happened and they wouldn't do it anymore. They started to sell them. There's ads for them on a lot of different sites. So ah, okay, maybe that's it. Um, so it became valuable once somebody said, "What are you taking that out of my dumpster for?" <laughs> and and so all right, the the new bobbining is going to happen this spring, and uh, uh, that means you know having picnic tables there would be good. So we, we've got a couple of picnic tables that we just picked up at a uh, yep. local hardware store. They're all wood. Uh, yep. We've, we have uh, improved on them a little bit here and there, uh, you know, modifying them to be more our values, but uh, the, the, the log thing um, could be, could be a good, uh, a good one there, especially yep. you're saying something portable because we would want to be able to, Put things away uh, yep. through the winter, and so one plot possible uh, oh, path would be if it's just a bunch of saddle joints. We could just put it together as a bunch of saddle joints. The only thing is, is the tabletop, you know, might need it need to be its own piece, a piece that you lift off or cam off or untie a couple of knots to remove. Yeah. Something like that. So that's a possibility. Uh, knock a peg out, slide a peg in. You know, if you had oh. a hole, if you had a hole and you put a peg in it to hold the top down, you put four pegs into it and they were removable. Then yeah. you could have a KD style. I got lots of ideas for this, so we're good. <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, next, let's talk about the solar pump at the kiddie pool. So basically, Samantha found for us a, uh, a a uh, place that's not too far away, and they make aluminum troughs. And uh, uh, so <clears throat> we we bought two. One is for what we were calling the kiddie pool. So we wanted to have a kiddie pool, but we didn't want it made out of that vinyl or some sort yeah. of plastic or something like that. But we wanted a place where people could go and dip their toes in some fresh, clean water on site to cool off if they wanted to. And, uh, uh, so, uh, Samantha found this, this place where there was a trough and I think it's like two feet deep and it's like, um, 
I, I think it's three feet by three feet, or is it four feet by four feet? Well, it's closer to it, four feet by four yeah, feet. Yeah, it's a four by four by two feet deep. Okay. So Stamped aluminum. Uh, uh, what we did was, is each day we, in the morning, we took the water out with, uh, just a water pump and then we sprayed that water on some growies nearby and we dumped fresh water in. And so we had fresh water in it every day. So the water was never funky. Um, and, uh, uh, so, and we also got another one that they custom made for us to be a hot tub. And so um I think that one was that one six by six or something? And it had like a, a bonus trough in the bottom where you put your feet. So that way when you're in the hot tub the water is like up to your shoulders and then you it's got a uh two benches basically facing each other and it's all aluminum. So uh it was up in the lab, wasn't it? Yeah. But yeah. but we didn't finish making the water heater last year, so that'll be probably Mud's first project this upcoming year is is making that <laughs> hot tub. Um. Anyway, so we've got the one that's the four foot by four foot that's two feet deep, and we called it the kiddie pool, and uh, it wasn't mounted to be ground level exactly, but almost. So that way we we kind of put some wood around it so you could kind of sit on the edge with your feet dangling inside the water trough. And uh I know that every time I went to test it, I always found it to be way too cold. <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys, but uh you set up something out there there's a an interesting thing uh where you can have a water pump that just simply is connected directly to a solar panel. Yep. And so every time the sun shines, like when it's a hot day, then um, the pump runs. And so you made a bit of a fountain. Yep. That could easily circulate the water in a bigger tub, definitely. How much? How many gallons per minute was it moving? I mean, it wasn't a big thing. It didn't need to be a big thing. Over 10 gallons a minute anyway. Yeah, it was a fair bit. I mean, yeah. it kind of, so you kind of have, now we have this bonus water feature next to the kiddie pool, which I thought was fun. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, but the, the, the thing that's important is what a, if you have something this ridiculously simple, suddenly all sorts of other projects become easier and simpler. Yeah. And and that's pretty much all it is. Solar panel wired directly to a 12-volt water pump. Yeah. And and it, and the more sun that hits it, the more water it pumps. It's pumped. And when the sun goes down, it stops pumping. Yep. The end. <laughs> It'd be easy to hook up some kind I mean, you could even lay a hose on the ground and circulate the water through it to heat the water for the hot tub. Just the, the black poly pipe would be just as easy to take pieces from some local well driller that installs stuff, hook them together in sections, and get 50 feet of this stuff for the price of the joinery. And that would heat that water every time the sun hit the solar panel and then circulate it in and out of the hot tub. So um, 
One of the things I'm trying to pursue with all of these projects is the idea of I don't want to use chlorine in these pools. Right. And now, granted, there are alternatives to chlorine, and I'm not really excited about those either. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, what are we, what are, what do we do, and um, uh, that that's more aligned with our values. And uh, uh, the number one thing is to just have so much water on hand that uh, we can just replace all of the water. You know, yeah. just and and now if the water is there. 24 hours or less, it's like, uh, there, there's no need anything. for, yeah, there's no need for chlorine. We'll be fine. Yeah, and ultraviolet light would do it too. True, true. That would be a good one. And, and that could be solar powered as well. It's very easily solar powered. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a, that's not a bad idea. So, all right. Simple, simple solar pump at the kiddie pool. Uh, yep. Next, next one. Uh, we talked about this a little bit yesterday and you weren't here, but, but you were the guy that, that originally pointed this out. And, um, and, uh, that is the cistern up at the lab. And so Samantha yep. was, was working on getting the pond sealed with the animals. Right. Only the cistern was full to overflowing, but the water was not going out. Through the overflow, there's a there right. was a pipe at the top of the cistern, and then the the pipe dropped down like eight feet. Yep. And, and then it kind of went over the ground in the bottom of a trench that had been dug through solid rock, uh, over to the pond. And uh, there was like either no water coming out or such a tiny amount of water that it seemed dumb. And in the meantime, the water in the tank was clearly higher than the than, overflow pipe. Than the overflow pipe. And it's kind of like, why isn't the water going in there? Now, we had Alan Booker with us yesterday, and, and of course, we talked about it at great length. But the amazing thing is, and it's like it, and it, and I could not get it in my head, and I had to spend hours doing research on it. And it, and I still feel like this shouldn't be true. But there it is. Even if there are no air bubbles in a pipe that kind of goes up and down a little bit, because it's gonna, it's going up maybe six inches, up yep. six inches, down six inches, up six inches, down six inches. It's like tiny and trivial, and the amount of pressure that the overflow should be putting into that is substantial. Yep. And yet. Apparently with a one inch pipe, because that's what this is. This is a one inch poly pipe. Apparently that is enough to totally cork the whole thing. Yep. And so when it, when that idea was presented to me, I said no. And it turns out I was wrong. <laughs> so, so where is, where's your explanation? How hell is it? Because granted, when you're looking at it, and it's like the pipe is clear, <clears throat> why is it not going? And it's like that's the best I could come up with is is like now we're just guessing, and that's a shit. I think it was air bubbles. I, that personally, I think uh, the fact that air was trapped in those six inch higher sections that the water couldn't push against it to get over it. 
Well, now if you got a if you've got a a garden hose, and it goes up and down, the water still comes out. But now a garden hose is going to be sixty five psi. Exactly. So we've got an eight foot water drop. Yeah, but so that gives you maybe twelve fifteen psi. Okay, so you're saying that with twelve psi, that uh, it's not enough to overcome the bubbles, but sixty five psi is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's that's fair. I mean, in the end, I think that it, that turns out to be exactly what it was. Yeah. Once you guys, like, I got out there and did a little bit of leveling, and then somebody went crazy on it, got it all dug out, and it just started to flow. Yeah. Yeah. Once once it got made to be kind of a a nice gentle slope to the pond, mm-hmm. then it all seemed to flow just fine, and and it drained that overflow just fine. And uh, now that trench is filled in, and um, you know uh, uh, the the that we were taking water out of the cistern uh, all summer, like so much so that the cistern never got to the overflow point. And uh, uh, but you know then once we stopped taking it, we also stopped going up there. So my <laughs> guess is the pond is full now. From a variety of different ways, you know, snow and rain and the, the overflow from the cistern and, right. and probably sealed now too because of Samantha's work. Right. So, all right. I, I just wanted to bring that up. Now, um, the next item on the list, I've got, uh, welding. So it was the, the, the kiln itself, kiln things. And then there was the J tube. And, right. uh, and so you made the skeletons for those. You did the welding for those. Um, and now did you do the welding or did you show somebody how to do the welding? I think I showed two or three people how to weld and then backed off unless they had a problem. Hi, this is Mark. There are a lot of reasons to get angry these days, but I prefer to focus on the positive things that we each can do to make this world a better place. The book Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys, is a great resource for just that. Instead of throwing my arms up in frustration at governments or big corporations, there's a list of ideas that we each can tackle to affect change. Information about this book and other resources can be found at permies.com. All right. And so, um, uh, and my, and, and on top of all of this, I'll bet that there was 47 little tiny projects that you did during the two week event. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like you're always, you know, whipping out this and whipping out that. And then of course, uh, you know, you'll, you'll end up with seven people in the shop. And you're showing each of them seven different things to build. It's like shop class all over again. It is. It is so far from my training. Yeah. This is, this is where Jim has drawn the most. It's like we got to get a crowbar and pry him out of the shop. Hey, I've, I've gotten of- better over the years, I think. <laughs> well, you know, these are awesome artifacts. So, um, but I also know that I remember one time, I don't, I don't know what it was, but, um, I, when I first learned how to weld, it was gas welding. Yep. And, and, uh, everybody does arc welding now, but when I first learned it was gas and it was all about the roll of nickels. Yeah. And, and it's like, uh, but I, it's like 
so often now everybody just goes right for some form, whether it's MIG or MIG. Yeah, MIG is the big one or stick. You know, yeah, and MIG, is like, the, MIG is the hot belt flute gun of the welding world. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, uh, and I remember, and I I own obviously I I because like a lot of people where they have gas, it's it's for cutting. They just they only yeah. do cutting. And uh, but I own the tips so that I you can I can do gas welding. And you must have found those tips because. Yeah. I, I saw you out there laying a roll of nickels, and it was a beautiful roll of nickels. <laughs> and, yeah, all my good work gets hidden under other stuff, though. <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of the way it is with welding. Well, but, welding, plumbing, wiring, it all just gets buried under sheetrock or concrete. Right, right. But I, all I want to do is I just want to say that was a beautiful roll of nickels, and that was like Anytime. two or three years ago. And yep. I don't even remember what you were working on. I think I think whatever it was you were working on was not worthy of this roll of nickels that you laid. Oh, I think it was uh, it was something for one of the rocket mass heaters. Okay, okay. So, um, but it does seem like uh, there is this whole element to do all the things. There's 47 little things every year that you jump in on and and uh, see to it that it gets done. And it's like, but it's it, they're not. It's, it's, I, I suspect that the 47 little things were not part of Mr. Otten's video. Because you just do it really quick. Nobody's there to video it. It's invisible to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, now, uh, uh, Jim, do you have anything else to add at this point? About the, this is, no, it was it was a good of each year. It's, it's a little bit learning curve as to where the subtle changes that have happened at Wheaton Labs year to year. It's kind of neat to show up for two weeks and go, oh, policy change here. Oh, that's a little bit neater there. Uh, and all I'm trying to do is add a little bit of lubricant to make things flow smoother. Uh, well, and a lot of times do. that'll. I mean, we have the boot ahead. camp. The boot camp goes all year long. And then, uh, so each time you're away, the, the boot camp keeps going. Yep. So oh, just to go up and, and look at Allerton Abbey and how much that has progressed in the past four years is pretty phenomenal. Uh, the green, underground, semi-underground greenhouse is a fantastic idea. So uh, I think you need to build some cordwood structures there too. Cordwood and cob or cordwood and lime. Well, now, uh, you did see the library, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and so I call it a different kind of cordwood house. Right. And, uh, and of course it's not a house. It's, it's just a library. But, um, uh, the, the thing that's an issue with cordwood structures is that, uh, you, you have these rounds that you stack and, and there's lots of stuff you can put between the rounds. So, you know, you're a big fan of papercrete. Uh, other people. I could see cob. I could see a lime based, uh, plaster or mortar. And the problem comes is if the wood shrinks any more than it has already shrunk. And then you, you would say, well, you just got to dry it even more before you start to build. Don't be so impatient. But even no matter how much you dry it, it still shrinks a little bit. 
and mm-hmm. and sometimes it'll even check afterwards. Yeah. So I would have said that with a cordwood house, the one thing you need to be able to do is to go around to the house afterwards uh, once a year and kind of do something to cork all the new little openings that have yep. popped open. Because uh, if you don't do that, now there's ways to mitigate this, but if you don't do that, the wind blows through a cordwood house. And in you a cold climate, that's pretty chilly. Yep. Now, um, there's ways to mitigate it, but then it's kind of like, uh, you've, you've like either done some serious modifications to each piece of cordwood, uh, or you do that thing where it's like cut all your cordwood in half and then you kind of make a wall in between two cordwood yep. walls. Two, yeah. You put an in- insulated area between two cordwood walls that are cross connected. Right. Every once in a while. Right. That right. seems to be the latest trends in cordwood building. And that way the checks don't matter because you've got something blocking in the center. Some guys will use uh, any kind of pourable insulation between the walls. Others have used rigid foam products. Uh, I tend to like the more natural things, you know, stuff that you can find, but, or what I can find for free. Right. Right. I, I've been thinking a lot more about slip straw. Like I'd rather, okay. I'd rather explore that space. Okay. But, but, okay, the, uh, um, the, the key is for now that, um, we have, we, we have covered the big, the big items that you did at the PTJ, uh, uh, last year. And of yep. course, you're going to be here this upcoming year. And, yep. uh, uh, and, and we'll do lots more projects. We haven't quite lined up which projects exactly we're going to do. There's a thread out at Permis asking people to vote on which projects they want to do. Um, yep. and, uh, usually what we do is we, you know, sort it in that order and then we start with 50 projects and then, um, we see if we can get two thirds of the way through the list by the time the event's over. Uh, yep. Which I think our format, which we tested a new format last year, I really like the new format. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't ask everybody at the end. I should have, uh, how they like the new format. So it's, it's five days and then two butterfly days and then five days. Yep. And so for the butterfly days, some people stuck around and kept doing stuff, but most people went to Missoula or to Glacier or uh, some other exciting destination to go do things. Swimming in the river. <laughs> Swimming in the river. Did anybody go on a float trip? I know that float trips here in this area are a big, big thing. I know there was a lot of talk about it. I don't know if anybody did it. I don't think anybody did it. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Usually when people go on the float trip, they it's like that was the best thing. Like they went to Glacier and the float trip and to like Lewis and Clark Caverns, and they come back and they say the float trip was the best. So float trip is apparently the big the big win. Anyway, all right. Um, now we were going to go on and talk to Austin Durant about putting up a million calories, but I can see in the chat that he's – he has to run away now. We've eaten up all of his time, but I see him still on the call. Austin? Yeah. Yeah, I got to get yeah. seven minutes. You hear me all right? Barely. Yeah. So, oh, that's a little bit better, yeah. So I take it you've only got like two minutes left or something like yeah, that. about five. 
<laughs> well, we can we can come back and do this another day. We can get all the details from you. You that'd know, be, that'd be better. I mean, overall, the main thing that you did was the 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 artifacts because the PTJ is about these big artifacts. Let's build some big things. And your artifact was to put up a million calories. And uh, you were hoping that you'd have like ten people with you throughout the event, and you had more like four to seven with you at every given moment. But I, but it, I believe you said you put up about two hundred and twenty-five thousand calories. Is that about right? Uh, that's that's what I calculated. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, before you run away today, I don't know. Can you tell us a little bit about? Because I know one of those things was let's put some food in the solar food dehydrator with rocket assist. Now, did you try both of the solar food dehydrators with and without rocket assist, or did you just stick with the one with rocket assist? I did. We did. We did both. So um, the items that we were kind of playing around with were um, soaked nuts. So what I do is I'll take a bunch of seeds and nuts and soak them in a brine for for a day. And then dry them out naturally, and that'll that preserves them, and it also uh, seasons them. So we did that big trays of that in both the um, the solar and the rocket assists. And there were a few days where it was a little uh, overcast, so we didn't have the sun to do that. And so we got to actually fire up the rocket. Um, another thing I I did that in there was uh, a granola, which is like a sourdough granola, which is kind of wet and battery at the beginning. And it takes like two to three days to really get nice and dry and crispy. So it worked very well. Both both uh, tools worked very well to to get those things preserved. And I think you guys were 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 still enjoying them. You in the boots for you know probably a, up until a month ago or so. So that was <laughs> cool. yeah, it's still it's still here. Uh, and uh, uh, I guess I guess the big thing is is while you were testing these two pieces of equipment. It was uh, early July, and uh, so we are just a few days after the longest day of the year, and we are pretty far north. So our so our when our days get long, they get really long, like mm-hmm. sunset at ten thirty, sunrise at four. Yep. And uh, and so I would think that these this would be a time that the solar food dehydrator without the rocket assist is going to be it's a very strong performer and so the fact that the two were performing about the same kind of kind of speaks well of the one with rocket assist because one <laughs> rocket assist is is optimized for fall mm-hmm. which is when your biggest harvest is and then, of course, on top of that, you had a couple of cloudy days, and it's like, oh yeah, turn on the rocket assist, you know. And it's like, so I, I think it just kind of keeps coming back to how the one with the rocket assist is just the big winner all the time. Plus, if you're trying to put up a million calories, I think you found that, wow, these cabinets, these drying cabinets are massive. We can. We can dry a lot of food in here all at once. Yes. Yeah. Did you get- it was very, very plush. And I think, yeah, when we get, you know, we didn't, we didn't get to do, uh, any animal proteins really. Or we did, we did some cheese, but, uh, we didn't do any, you know, like a big prosciutto or anything like that. So 
that would also help us um, bump up to the to the to the higher towards towards a million. But um, yeah, maybe doing jerkies and that sort of stuff. But yeah, it was definitely plush to have a huge amount of, of real estate in there. And I think people were were drying herbs, you know, doing other projects at the same time, and there was plenty of room for for everybody in the in the box. Yeah, that's true because a lot of different people were doing different things at the same time as well. In addition. And it's like the, the cabinets are just so big, it's like not a problem. In fact, it's it's designed so we can even add more trays, even still. And uh, and we've talked about doing some of that. But okay, um, how about uh, uh, you and I exchange some emails after this podcast, and we'll set up another time so we can get all the details from you. Um, but uh, at this moment, anybody else have anything they want to squeeze into this? Into this podcast, anything they need to say? <laughs> Silence means no. Okay. We, I'm sorry. We have, um, is, is it, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting your name here. You just showed up. Me? Jacob? Yeah. Jacob, that's right. Yeah. Oh. Wester, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for coming in. Yeah. Sorry. I kind of unannounced and unplanned, but it's how awesome my to your face. life is right now. Yeah. So, uh, Mr. Wessner, it's good to see you. Uh, uh, I take it you've got some time for us right now? Yeah, I've got time today. Um, yeah, however much time it takes. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, well, let's just, let's keep going. Let's wrap this thing up with, uh, now, Jacob, when you were here, everything that you touched had something to do with honeybees. And so I I believe you had like three projects, is that right? Yeah, basically. Um three different I would say hive styles or well two different hive styles and one was just swarm traps. That was the third. Um so we did a horizontal log hive and then a vertical log hive. Um Kind of inspected the old equipment, but there wasn't really much there left to inspect. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, we built, I think it was two or three swarm traps. I can't remember, just based on what um, lumber we had available for that. Right. And, yeah. So for, for the sake of the podcast, what is a swarm trap? Swarm trap is... Basically, a wooden cavity, although they make swarm traps out of like kind of like a paper mache cardboard product. But, um, or it can be an old hive, basically empty or new, and then just fits the dimensions and what honeybee swarms are looking for in terms of when they're looking to start a new home. So they search out a cavity of an approximate size uh, with a approximate entrance size and then not full of a bunch of big cracks or gaps or holes, but some sound wood, nothing too rotten. And it's just basically creating a, a space for a swarm to move into so that you can get bees for free. Um so we just use 
what dimensions Tom Seeley, which is a prominent bee researcher, has kind of figured as the optimum size for swarm trap, which is roughly five gallons or the size of one deep Langstroth. And then um, the optimum size of entrance is four square inches. Um, I don't think the shape is that big of a deal, um, but that's kind of the optimum size of entrance. So with those two things, we just used the dimensions of the wood we had and then made um, some boxes with an entrance and something that would be an would be easy to hang on a tree or other um, structure. And then also once the bees moved in, it'd be easy to remove one side and then transfer the combs to the hive. Excellent. Excellent. So basically the idea is, is that um, you made about three of these or three or four? I think it was three. Okay. So with Um, three of these. (laughs) Yeah. We can place these three in our area. And so, uh, and they're empty. They're totally empty. We just put them up. And, uh, and then it's possible that there could be a beehive nearby, a honey beehive in the area within a mile or two. And, uh, things are going so well for that beehive that they swarm. So they're going to uh, uh, basically take off with two-thirds of the bees and leave behind a third of the bees with new queens. So the old queen goes with the swarm, and they're going to go find a, a new place. This is basically the primary way that honeybees, in a manner of speaking, reproduce. Things are so good in one spot they make way too many bees and they can divide. Uh, a big bunch go off to make a, a brand new, uh, hive somewhere, a new, a new colony. And then mm-hmm. the, uh, old colony continues, but with a new queen. Right. This is, yeah. is yeah. the way it works. Now, and this is when, when the genetics for our region are working. This, this this colony is so healthy, so happy, so good, so so everything positive that right. it's like it's going to work. Because what other beekeepers? And I, this is a good time to say, "Hey, Mister Wester, who the hell are you? What makes you <laughs> think you know what the fuck you're doing?" I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Figuring it out. I mean, yeah, I grew up in a beekeeping family. Um, my dad became a beekeeper as a, a summer gig, and that turned into a profession for him. And so I grew up pretty much always in the bees. And then I worked for him, but more importantly, I worked for um, who he worked for, which is Bill Mitchell, who's actually a fourth-generation beekeeper. And so I just started learning the process of extracting honey through working. I knew a little bit about um, bees just through my dad and, and growing up in that environment. But then when I was 19, I got some of my own hives and then really started diving into the world of beekeeping. So 
Um, mostly experience. I've done quite a bit of research on my own, nothing like professionally or through um, academic institution, but just a lot of reading and then, you know, listening to podcasts. Actually, one of your podcasts really got me going on um, the treatment-free vein uh, is a podcast you did with Jacqueline Friedman. Mm. And um, that drove me to find the organic beekeeping group on Yahoo, which was led by D. Lusby. And then from there, I went to a couple of their organic beekeeping conferences, which no longer occur. It, um, D is kind of older and things kind of just fell apart. Yahoo closed that group. <laughs> and although there's like treatment free beekeeping um, groups on like Facebook and stuff, uh, that email, um, group is now gone. But that's what got me into tree- treatment free beekeeping. Um, and also just being really into permaculture, it was a natural fit. So I've been trying to do treatment free beekeeping since 2013. Um, didn't really have success until about 2019. Um, when I got some better genetics and kind of better had, genetics. Uh, That's where I was going with all this. Better genetics. Tell us <laughs> about your better genetics. Um, well, so wild honeybees in this country and probably other parts of the world were forced through what we call a genetic bo- bottleneck where most colonies died because of supposedly varroa mites, um, their inability to cope with them and then the varroa mite spread disease, mostly viruses, which kind of put the nail in the coffin for um, honeybee colony. So in the wild, they went through this genetic bottlenecking. And then um, from that, the wild bees started coming back. Uh, not so much in northern parts of the country, like northwestern parts of the country. I think part of that is the long winters and the ability to bounce back is just slower. I know they're out there, but Tom Seeley, um, who I mentioned before, he uh, actually ran, I think it was him, or maybe it was him partnering with some other people, some, you know, genetic analysis of these bees that have been sur- surviving. And basically, they uh, another lab narrowed it down to this uh, genetic trait, and they're calling it VSH. Um, varroa sensitive hygiene. And it's basically bees taking care of varroa on their own through hygienic behavior, which is grooming themselves for the mites, biting the mites, removing them um, from the hive, pulling them from capped brood, um, and just, you know, staying on top of it themselves where most of the bees that are kept commercially, they don't do that. They don't have that um, genetic trait. And so they are reliant on the beekeeper for mite control. And um, whether you're organic or not, you're still treating for mites in most um, situations. So the wild bees, you know, were forced to figure it out. And then some of the more savvy beekeepers that wanted to use that to their benefit have started getting this genetic component or VSH queens. And then once you start introducing those, you start seeing varroa mites coming down. Your losses from varroa are 
Um, they're still there, but they're not a hundred percent losses like you will see if uh, commercial bees are just left to go on their own. So when I finally got some of those queens, I started having success. I also regressed bees down to the natural size of um, about 4.9 or 4.95 millimeter cell size. And once I had those things down, I started having success. I'm still working out um, the bugs. <laughs> and uh, No pun um, intended. Tr- <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. Uh, trying to convert my operation to entirely treatment free. But right now I, I run two different operations. One is still treated for varroa and other diseases. And then the other group is entirely treatment free. And I, um, hope to one day be just a solid treatment free beekeeper and don't, um, don't have to rely on treatments at all. So uh, a big key out of all of this is that there are going to be some colonies in a hollow log somewhere uh, mm-hmm. throughout Montana. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to pretend especially near my house. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I get to pretend whatever I want to pretend. And so well, – uh, you got trees, so that helps. There, there's a, there's a fair number of those. And so, but you know, we're not too far away from, uh, Forest Service land. And mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, and there's even some wilderness back in there a bit. But the key is, is that there could be, I mean, if nothing else, you brought us a colony like nine years ago, maybe eight <laughs> yeah. years ago, and it swarmed. They were right. so happy they swarmed. And mm-hmm. so I don't know where the swarm went. <laughs> but I was Usually thinking, the case. I was, I was kind of thinking like, well, they had a, they had good genetics. Their, their genetics were that good. And, and it's kind of like, uh, whereas like, let's say, let's say I'm not going to do swarm traps mm-hmm. and I'm going to go online. I'm going to go find myself, uh, a colony to put into a hive. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to go buy them. Now, people that do that, they're generally going to buy it from the Midwest or something like that. There's going to be a place that will sell you a colony. They'll, they'll, they'll mail you a nuke full of bees and there'll be a queen with it, typically. Yeah. And well, yeah. Usually nooks you have to pick up like the, which is, you know, with frames. In a box. Generally, what's mailed is a package, which doesn't come with frames, but it's it's basically the same thing. Yeah. And so, a lot of people, that's if they're getting into this, this is what they do, right? And, Most and now, people. Yeah. Tell me about the genetics of this package that's going to arrive. Like, if we yeah, live in Missoula, here we are in Missoula. I've decided to do honeybees, and so they mm-hmm. buy the. And it's like, what's that genetic package like? Is it going to last a year treatment-free? Um, possibly. Uh, what I found is that um, when they when you buy commercially raised bees, um, usually they have been treated for mites, and they can survive a whole year untreated. Um, that's actually fairly normal. It's usually the next year that things start going bad, like 18-month mark. Um, 
the the bees that's, are just that's, so that's going to be the original queen, right? Right. And and yet the genetics for 18 months later is different than the genetics for the first 18 months. Um well the, that, and no, maybe the, there's accumulation of, of varroa mite or other problems are starting to accumulate in the hive. Yeah, it's usually like just a, you know, a race of, you know, if the bees start pretty clean, or, and what I mean by clean, free of diseases, they, uh, they'll, they'll be able to go for a while. Um, but it's, it's just the lack of hygienic behavior, um, the queens don't generally last as long, so that's that's an issue. But they they're just they're so dependent on human human intervention. I mean, these bees are fairly domesticated. The ones that we keep commercially, they've been um, selected over hundreds, if not thousands, of years by beekeepers to exhibit certain traits. Whereas the bees in the wild, they're really just there to survive, and they're selected by those pressures so we haven't really selected for um bees um commercially to be uh independent or you know survive without human intervention and that's particularly true since um the introduction of varroa but there's other factors as well um there is um, the fact that we've selected bees to produce um, a lot of brood and keep very high numbers of bees in the colony because you get more pollination, you get more honey. Um, they're not as conservative, so you have to feed them. Um, they don't select as much propolis, propolis which is the hive's main um, tool for fighting um, infections, particularly viruses. And so with all those different factors, you've created, um, bees that are very dependent on the beekeeper to survive year after year. Whereas the wild bees, you know, they, they might not build up brood, um, that fast. They might be more conservative with their honey stores. Um, they might propolize their hive a lot more and help that uh, and use that to fight infections. So you're, there's a whole host of um, um, factors or traits that we've bred out of commercial bees that will help honeybees survive in the wild. So when you start with those bees and you think that you're going to go treatment-free, um, and I did the same thing when I first started, it just doesn't work in my experience. And, ah, there um, we go. This podcast is continued in part three. In a world on the brink of social collapse, one website stands above the rest to fight back the zombie horde of corporate trolls. Permies.com. Take back control of your destiny and protect your loved ones from the toxic gick coming at you from all directions. Strap on your overalls and start building that bunker of abundance with the good vibes and friendly, helpful insight found at permies.com.